Mysteries to Die For is sponsored by Down and Out Books. This episode's featured release is by one of my favorite authors, Frank Zafiro. Frank Zafiro writes gritty crime fiction from both sides of the badge. His River City series is a police procedural that follows an ensemble cast of police officers, while a Spoke Compton series focuses on a variety of criminals or people just down on their luck. He's written over 30 novels, some on one side of the badge and some on the other. You can pick up and choose which you prefer at his website, frankzafiro.com. Welcome to Mysteries to Die For. I'm Shannon Leahy, and I'm here with Jack, the piano player and producer. This is a podcast where we combine storytelling with original music to put you at the heart and mystery of murder and mayhem. Some episodes will be my own stories, others will be classics that help shape the mystery genre we know today. These are arrangements, which means instead of word-for-word readings, you will get a performance meant to be heard. Jack and I perform these live, front to back, no breaks, no fakes, and no retakes. Unless it's really bad, of course. This episode will be read by me, Shannon Leahy. This is Season 2. This season contains adaptations of stories published in the 1800s. These stories are some of the first considered to be mysteries. For that reason, this series is called The Originators. Today's story is about perceptions and realities. This is Episode 11, Natural Causes, an adaptation of Notting Hill Mystery by Charles Felix. The story contains several settings, but the only specifically named, the only one specifically named is the original title, Notting Hill. Notting Hill is an ori- Notting Hill is a neighborhood in London that is trendy and fashionable with a distinctive small village feel, according to TripAdvisor at least. It is famous for its market where vendors sell everything from fruit to veggies to antiques. This area is also the center for entertainment and theaters, for live shows and cinemas. The area has nearly 2,900 reviews with a rating of 4.5 and is ranked number 142 of 2,359 things to do in London. Not too shabby. While only 11 miles from Greenwich Observatory with and the Prime Meridian, it will take about 45 minutes to drive there. That's how you know you're in a big city. Here in our corner of Indiana, 11 miles takes you 20 minutes if your route has traffic lights. The Notting Hill Mystery was written by Charles Felix and released in an eight-part serial in magazine called Once a Week, beginning in November 1862. It was released as a novel in 1865 on Goodreads. The Notting Hill Mystery has 605 ratings with an average of 3.21. Let's take a look at a few of these reviews. Here's a four-star rating. Good grief, this book might possibly win the award for most convoluted murder mister I've ever read, but it's definitely and seriously fun. It definitely got a thin plot, but it rates pretty high on my enjoyment meter because of its diabolical craziness and downright crazy story elements. Here's a three-star rating. A good example of procedural investigation presented to the reader in epistorial style. The language was typically wordy and appropriate to the Victorian area it was set in, but much of the story was quite repetitive. Gather statements, compare, report evidence. This is how the case is built. And even though the culprit was reasonably clear from the beginning, I did enjoy reading the Notting Hill mystery. Here's a one-star rating. A tough read. I can appreciate the work needed to construct a book like this, but it's not riveting when you have to unscramble the Victorian script. In fact, I'm not even sure it was a story. Just a series of statements tacked together. Not my cup of tea. It's funny when you read several reviews with totally different ratings and agree with them all. Jack, tell us a little bit about our author of the day. Hi! Okay, so the Notting Hill Mystery was written by Charles Felix, or was it? This story and another called Velvet Lawn were credited to Charles Felix and published by Sanders, Oatley & Company. An 1864 column of the Manchester Times put it out there that Charles Felix was actually Charles Warden Adams. Adams was the attorney for the publishing house and eventually took over management when Sanders and Oatley died. Adams never admitted to being Charles Felix. At what? At least not publicly. His wife and friends probably knew, though. 
A few academics got curious about this mystery and dug into the writing in 1952 and then again in 2011. Two separate people came to the conclusion that Charles Warren Adams was Charles Felix. Adams, who'd been dead for almost 50 years, neither confirming nor denying the results. So when was Charles Warren Adams? Oh, to, so well, that's not English. So who was Charles Warren Adams? He was an English lawyer born in 1833. He was married twice, and he married his first wife, Georgina, in 1861. She died in 1880. He then met Mildred, that's a great name, Coleridge, uh, who was the daughter what? Daughter of the Lord Chief Justice. Mildred's family didn't approve of the couple, and court actions followed on Adams won. On which Adams won? Charles and Mildred married in 1885, Charles died in 1903, and Mildred in 1929. There wasn't actually any information on if he had any children, or anything about his legal practice. He worked as the representative of the publishing firm while the founders were alive, so he probably did the same for other businesses. Uh, Charles and his wife were animal activists. As an anti-vivisectionist, they were especially active in stopping practices of testing on animals. Here's another word of the day. Vivisection. Surgery conducted on experimental purposes for the living organism, typically animals with a central nervous system, to view living internal structure. I hope you can hear the dogs. They are being rather talkative today. Well, we're nearly ready to begin our story. While Jack resets his microphone and warms up his fingers, I'll explain why we are doing adaptations of these early stories instead of performing them as written. Well, there's two main reasons. The language from the 1800s is hard, and it can be difficult to understand with our modern ear. The speech is Candace. It's just different. Second, the style and length of the stories were not created for listening, but these adaptations, we kept the heart of the story, preserving the ground, breaking narrative, but update the packaging for easier digestion. Character names are in the show notes. And so, we are ready for natural causes. Jack, if you will, take us in. Chapter 1 the strange parentage of Baroness Rosaline. Julius Caesar and Baroness Rosaline Ricarded died on the Isles of March, 1,901 years apart. Caesar was assassinated by a group of Romaine senators, stabbed 23 times, a most unnatural death. Baroness Rosaline had a less dramatic death, leaving this world after a prolonged and baffling illness. But what is a natural death? There might not have been a questionable ex question except her husband, the Baron Ricard, had taken out a life insurance policy from the London Company for 5,000 pounds, the highest allowed. In November 1854, he took, a, he took a similar one from the company in Manchester in December 1884. January 1885, two police were taken one from Liverpool and one from Edinburgh. A fifth policy was taken in February from Dublin. Baron Ricard was 25,000 pounds richer than the day his wife died, which is why they collectively hired me, Ralph Henderson, to investigate the circumstances of the death of Baroness Rosaline. I begin by gathering statements from those closest to the deceased to ascertain if there was a circumstance needing investigating. Baron Ricardid's written testimony of the last six months of his wife's life were filled with doctors and sick nurses, all working feverishly to sustain her life in the Notting Hill flat. Of the many statements he made in the five-page affidavit, one expressively said his wife was not afflicted with somnambulance, that is, sleepwalking. Yet a statement by Joseph Aldrich, a young man who resided in the apartment below Baron and Baroness testified to the contrary. One small contradiction sent me into work. In my experience, understanding life is the key to dis deciphering death. Rosaline's life was not what one expected in a Baroness. According to the Baron's testimony, he met his wife when she toured with the circus. The circus and the circus master were the only life the girl had known. Although the former was not 
the home she was born to and later was not her father. He recognized the beauty and talent within her and offered for her. She became his assistant and then his beloved wife. The woman in my office had been difficult to track down, but as we discussed in the newly deceased, I knew she had been worth the time. Julia Clark and I had the slender build and strength of a dancer with intelligence in her bright eyes. Yes, Mr. Henderson, I performed with the woman you called Baroness Rosaline. We were girls together, working for Mr. Rogers from the time we were children. She was Charlotte Brown, Lottie, to us. How did she come to join your circus? I asked. How does anyone come to join the circus? Julia lifted a slender shoulder when I let the silence hang between us. Mr. Rogers told us he bought her from the gypsy parents for five pounds, one for every year she was old. Sadly, it wasn't a unique story. Financially stretched couple, couples often sent their children to work. Sometimes they brought money into the families. More often, it was revealed the burden of feeding and clothing the child. What did she do in the circus? Was the Baroness a dancer with you? Julia shook her head. Lottie walked the high wire. She had a common grace and balance. With her dark hair and dark eyes, she looked exotic. Everyone admired the way she danced in the air. When we were teens, she had an accident. She fell and hurt her foot badly. When she came out of the hospital, the circus had closed up. Mr. Rogers had investigated the music hall by then, keeping some of us on. He created acts for all types of us, juggling, acrobatics, and a bit on mesmerizing. He did that one himself, and Lottie was always his subject. Of course, she was putting on a show. She would sit in the audience, coming up, and he asked for a volunteer. She would stare at the glass. He called a diamond, and then she fell asleep at his command. He would order her to dance and squawk like children, and the such. Then one night, she didn't play it right. Behind the stage, Mr. Rogers was giving it to her, and Lottie fainted. When she came to, she said it wasn't her. Someone in the audience did it. I paused in my note-taking. Did what, exactly? I asked. Why, mesmerizing her, Mr. Rogers. He was so mad he threatened to sack her. She left the next day. I cried. She was the sister I didn't have. She took a handkerchief from the bag and dabbed her eyes. Mr. Rogers sacked her after one night? I asked. She shook her head. The morning after Lottie had that fainting spell, the gentleman came in. Lottie left with him, and Mr. Rogers was 25 pounds richer. She wrinkled her nose in distaste. The, the, the gentleman was barren? I asked. She nodded. Did you hear from Lottie after she left? Surely. We wrote letters, just like real sisters. She didn't like the baron. She said she had to do what he wanted because he mesmerized her. These are my letters from her. The last one is dated 1852. The letter stopped, but I had gone to Dublin at this point. The baron was a mesmerizer? I asked, taking the tattered collection. Like Mr. Rogers? The sort? That couldn't make people act like chickens? More, Julia said. Lottie said he was true talent. He could make people do all manner of things, and when they came out of it, he would swear up and down that they had it. A couple of times, men came to blow with their mates over the silliness. I see, I said. Did Rosaline, that is Lottie, have romantic feelings toward the Baron? No, she said. Lottie was popular with the gents and talked about this one and that one. Look at her letters. She never loved that Baron. Did she talk about having plans to leave the circus? Uh, with or without Baron? No, Julia said. The last conversation we had was about the threats of Hazel costume being stretched to their limits. I remember because Mr. Rogers gave Lottie's costume to Hazel and I was charged for the tailoring. Excellent, Miss Clark, I said. Tell me, was Lottie a sickly person? W w was she prone to bow to stomach illness, for example? No more than anyone, Julia said. Traveling as we do, you ate what you could and when you could, and if you know my meaning, made us stronger if you ask me. 
I can imagine, I said. Did Mr. Rogers or Lottie say anything more about where she came from? Perhaps the, the name of a sibling? She was a gypsy, Julia said. As anyone knew who looked at her, she was performing with her parents before Mr. Rogers brought her. She was known as the Little Wonder. She would tell us the story over and over about we came to him. For Lottie, it was the summer of 1837. I came the next year. He called us to the sun and moon on account of being light-haired and her dark. Was Lottie known to sleepwalk? I asked. Never, she said. We shared quarters for years, and Lottie was a perfect partner. She didn't walk or talk or snore in her sleep, if you'll pardon my bluntness. Her planned reference to unladylike behaviors made her blush, her thickened lashes covering her eyes. What does it matter? Maybe it doesn't, Miss Clark, but maybe it matters more than anything. Chapter 2 A Healer Most Extraordinary The Baron toured all of England, selling his mesmerizing service for entertaining and medical purposes to nobility and gentry alike. Charlotte, a.k.a. Lottie, now known as Rosaline, acted as his assistant. In 1854, some three years later, the Baron met the acquaintance of Mr. William Anderton, who begged him to see his wife, Gertrude. John Pettigrew, butler to the Anderson, sat in my office on a sunny day afternoon to offer a testimony. The Baron came at the request of Mr. William Anderton. Pettigrew said. Madam suffered from a weak constitution that the winter had been especially hard and she grew ill while traveling in December. It was weeks before she was well enough to travel home. I was surprised at how weak she was. Madam was always delicate. She had a milky complexion untouched by the sun and gray blue eyes and colors of flowers. She went, When she returned home she was so thin all I could see right through her. Mr. Adderton would move heaven and earth to help his wife, and so it's not surprising that he was so enticed by the Baron. This last bit was set with a bite of venom. Did the woman know as Rosaline arrived with the Baron? No, the Baron called one afternoon, invited by Mr. Adderton. He asked for Mrs. Adderton to join them in the family parlor. I stayed in the room, attending them, as the Baron asked Mrs. Anderton about her system. Symptoms. His eyes were sly, and he looked at my master. I'm confident I can help, he said. I could imagine the reaction of a desperate husband. Uh, did Baron suggest a fee? Pettigrew shook his head. He didn't need to. The master said he would give over his house if the Baron could help his wife. The Baron smiled. He was a gentleman, if I ever saw one. He said his standard fee would be sufficient. Then he moved closer to the mistress and began talking to her. She was visibly uncomfortable with the stranger, so close to her person. The master closer himself, encouraging her to be brave. The Baron laid his hands on her head. I could not hear the words he said, but soon the mistress relaxed. Her breath was noticeably easier and color returned to her cheeks. He mesmerized her into health, I asked, doubtful. Undoubtedly, Mr. Adderton was impressed, I said. Relieved, I should think, is a better word. Or encouraged, maybe. How long did the benefits of the treatment last? I assumed she was not cured after the single afternoon. She was more herself by a day or two, Pettigrew said. The Baron had told Mr. Adderton that to be truly effective, the therapy would have to be applied multiple times a week at the beginning. Adderton readily agreed, I assume. When did Rosaline arrive? A few days later, once the arrangement was made, I suspect Baron sent for her. What were your first impressions of her, I asked. With a hesitant, he hesitated for the first time. It was difficult to get impression of her. She was a, a lovely thing, with dark hair. The eye of every male of the household followed her when she passed. She didn't speak English, only German. None of us spoke the language, except Baron, of course. She didn't seem to have a lonely existence. I leaned into my desk, intrigued by Pettigrew's revelation. One thing was not in doubt. The Baroness Ricarded C. Nee, Charlotte Brown, was raised speaking English. 
Are you certain, Mr. Pettigrew? It would seem anyone spread, spending any time in England would pick up a word or two. Oh, a word or two, surely. Thank you. Good evening, excuse me. Simple words, although they were delightful in her accent. Language was never a barrier between Mistress and Miss Rosaline. It seemed from the beginning that there was a connection between them, a fine chain that let them talk without speaking. Two different women you'd never seen, and it did not seem to matter. Rosaline's company helped the mistress as much as the Baron's treatments. An interesting turn of events, I noted. How frequently did the Baron and Rosaline call on Adderton's? Well, they moved in, taking two rooms on the family floor. Mrs. Adderton never did grow comfortable with the Baron touching her. A solution was found when the Baron laying hands on Rosaline, using her as a surrogate to transfer the healing of my lady needed. And that worked? I asked, failing to disguise my skepticism in my voice. Yes. Week by week, she grew stronger. At first, leaving her room for longer periods, and then eventually the house. She was... It was a happy day when the Baron declared her cured. A surprise, I thought. A charlatan would never let a fish such as Adderton off the hook. The Baron moved on then? Yes. And Rosaline with him. There was a sadness there. Madame dearly wanted Rosaline to stay. She tried to get a word in with her privately. The Baron was careful not to let the two women be alone together. My head spun. Living in the same house, wouldn't that have been a natural event? Two women being alone together. The house was not what others would have considered normal, Mr. Mr. Adderton didn't notice it. If he did, he wouldn't have cared. His wife was returning to health. After the Baron and Rosaline left, did you see her again? Him? But not her. The Baron and Mr. Adderton had become friends. He would return occasionally, staying the night, never more than one or two. He would give Mr. Mrs. Adderton a boost, as he called it, and move on. On the occasion he announced that he was going to marry, he didn't name the lady, and it wasn't my place to ask. It was indeed a surprise to learn that the lady in question was Rosaline. Rosaline and the Baron were not admirers towards each other, affectionate? He was warm to her, Pettigrew said. She was intolerant. Their relationship was a puzzle. Miss Rosaline certainly never acted as though she interested in such as arrangement. The Baron was very gracious to her. At times, he attended to himself, the best kind of gentleman. His voice slightly tightened. In your observation, it was not a, a love match? His thin lips pressed tightly together. I couldn't say, sir. There was something here, something the butler knew that I needed to know. Mr. Pettigrew, I can see that you're holding back something. Please, sir, consider me your confidant. You call the Baron a gentleman, and yet your face calls him a scoundrel. Why, why is that? Controlled outrage colored Pettigrew's British complexion. As God is my witness, he killed the Addertons. Chapter 3 The Strange Death of William and Gertrude Adderton The professional that calmly testified to the arrival and actions of Baron was lost to the man grieving to the couple as he counted as the family. I knew Gertrude Bolton from the time he was a young girl. She was precious little bird of a thing, and her white gold hair was cornflower blue eyes. I was a footman for her aunt, Catherine Boltman. When Gertrude came to live with her, the child had a sad story. She and her twin sister were born in November 1832, on a day her mother and father died. Kathleen Boltman and her elder sister, named after her mother's aunt, my employer. Gertrude Bolton was the younger sister, named after her mother. Her mother died soon after the birth of a broken heart. Her father, Edward, died in a poorly chosen duel. The aunt, Kathleen, was in poor health herself, and the girls were raised under the patronage of a good-hearted woman. I understand Kathleen was stronger, healthier of a pair. Gertrude, being more delicate and sensitive, the woman worked hard, giving the girls a good life until the day. During a picnic with her friends, Kathleen disappeared. She was taken. She was only five years old. I was sucked into the story. You don't say. Was she found? No. 
my employer, brought Gertrude home and set resources to find her lost niece. It was as if she went up in smoke. What about the woman who was raising them? I asked. Was she investigated? Oh, thoroughly, thoroughly, he said. She talked about how the girls could talk to each other without speaking a word and held out hope that Gertrude could find her. But it wasn't to be. I understand the that she, she loved those girls and she was sick of losing little Kathleen. I heard... I heard... I heard tell she ended up in the lunatics asylum day and night searching for the baby a proper nanny was hired for gertrude i watched her grow from a sun child to a rosebud the household sighed with relief when mr adderton offered for her he was known as the sound of a businessman if there were any concerns it was that too as had a somewhat delicate constitution maybe that was the attraction birds of a feather, as it were. When they married, I went with Mrs. Anderson to become their butler. Was there a reason for Mrs. Edderton's alignments ever determined? I asked. The Baron suspected that his daughter, his sister's disappearance permanently affected her. He said that a broken heart was the root of the issue, and that using mesmerism could help her move through that grief. I take it you didn't believe him. Well, well, I did at first. After all, she did improve. She and Mr. Anderson were able to live a normal life for a good while, but then she began to decay again. It was the strangest of illnesses. Mrs. Anderson would become violently ill with stomach ailments and take days to recover, only to fall ill again. No doctor could explain it. Over the course of months, she would be confined to her bed for days at a time. Did the Baron and Rosaline return to care for her? I asked. Pettigrew shook his head, not like previously. The Baron came to visit, but if you ask me, he came to see her, see the mistress more than the missus. Mister more than the missus. There wasn't anything to be done. Mrs. Adderton died in October 1856. It was a dark time. Mr. Adderton was suspected of killing her. The doctors and the police said that the illness wasn't natural, which made it unnatural. At the end, she would only take food from her husband's hand. Which, which meant, I said, if she was poisoned, he fed it to her. Well, that's what they reasoned. If you recall my saying, Mr. Adderton didn't have the hardiest constitution. He, he took to his bed shortly after her death. The Baron came and visited him, offering his condolences, it seemed. The next morning, Mr. Adderton's valet found him dead. He left a note to his wife, declaring his love and apologizing for what he did. I was astounded at the turn of events. What, what did he do? He wasn't specific, but it certainly implied that he, that he killed Mrs. Anderson. That is rubbish. He loved his wife, like few men do, but he would never have lifted a finger to harm her. Waited while he exhausted the emotion. What what did he die of? He took a drought a draught of some sort. It was the Baron's. He realized he was missing a bottle and retraced his steps to the Adderton's. He was shocked to find that Mr. Adderton had used it. He dropped his head, looking at me deviously, or so he said. If it if I wasn't a man of facts, I would have bet on Pettigrew. You hold the Baron responsible for their deaths? You believe he poisoned Mrs. Adderton despite not living in the house? How could he do that? I do not know, Mr. Henderson, but I am certain that if Mr. Adderton had not met the Baron, both would be alive today. Chapter 3 A Visit to the Will's Office I explored the Baron's movements from the time he arrived to the Adderton household until he moved into the rooms on Notting Hill. This is a normal course of action and investigation such as this, but I went to an unusual level of detail because of Mr. Pettigrew. The Baron was a reasonably well-known figure. He and Rosaline were not difficult to track down as they worked their way across England. 
performing for audience, public and private. Even while he lived with Addertons, he and Rosaline would leave for days at a time, always returning within a week. While in London, the Baron spent an afternoon at the office of Wills. The clerk remembered the Baron because of the incident. It seemed that the Baron found a will he was particularly invested in and wanted to take it to copy. The clerk declined as such a thing was not permitted of official documents. The Baron became boisterous and made a grand show of having memorized the document, arguing that he had the information and there was nothing to be lost by them copying it. With all people in the office looking at him, the clerk still declined. The Baron left in a huff, tossing the will on the clerk's desk as if it were garbage beneath his station to touch. The name on that will was Reginald Bolton. Reginald died in the service of the country, leaving over 2,500 pounds to Miss Kathleen Bolton, or, in the event of her death, her descendants. Based on this date, this Catherine Bolton was the aunt to the mother Gertrude, great aunt to the twins Catherine and Gertrude. The inheritance had not been claimed. Chapter 4 The Midnight Visit The Baron and his Baroness continued to work across England. The Baron returned to the Addertons when word of Gertrude's death reached him. Rosaline stayed in her room, in inn. The landlady remembered her as it wasn't every day she hosted a German Baron and Baroness. She spoke highly of the Baron, praising him as a gentleman and affectionate husband. She said Rosaline was quiet and seemed a, a bit afraid of her husband. Their marriage had been some six months old when the Baron began ensuring his wife's life. They did not settle, but expanded their travels in Scotland and across sea to Ireland. It was a full year and a half worth of before the couple had walked through the door of the house and led in Notting Hill. That is where Joseph Aldridge met the pair. I traveled to Notting Hill to talk to him. I went to school with Eric Elston, the landlady's son, Joseph said. His mother began letting the rooms out after his father died. His father lived on the top floor. The baron in his household had the middle floor. I had the ground floor. Miss Elston employed two maids who kept the rooms on the ground floor, off the kitchen, separate from mine. She seemed uneasy about the Baron when they first arrived. What put her off? I asked. Mrs. Elston had her own particular ways of doing things. The Baron wanted his way. For example, he wanted his own help brought in, refusing to let Mrs. Elston or her girls enter the flat. She repeatedly said, it's not done that way. She didn't think of turning them out. Not really. The Baron paid his rent in advance and was timely and generous on payments for wood and food. Did you know the couple? I asked. I can't say that I did. The Baron didn't approve of me, although I don't know why. Miss Elston said I should give him away as his wife was sick. She said the man thought the sun rose and set by his wife and such a man could not stomach it well when she was ill. He rolled his eyes. Which part did you doubt? I asked. Hard to say, really. I suppose I doubted the man was sincere about anything. He seemed the type of a, a showman, but that's the arist aristocracy for you. Was the Baroness not sick then? Oh, she most definitely was. There were times when I can hear her being sick several times a day. Doctors would come and sick nurses. Funny thing, it seemed she would take a turn for the worse every two weeks. How do you know all this, Mr. Aldridge? Did you see it for yourself? The doctors and nurses coming and going, most definitely. They spoke freely about the Baroness and that I was acquainted with the maids, both for the Baron and for Mrs. Elstein. Strange happenings went on behind those walls. Tell me what kind of things happen, Mr. Aldridge. I beg you, be as specific as you can. You wrote me that the Baroness walked in her sleep? Yes, I saw her myself. I came back one late evening and I couldn't get in. Usually, Millie, that's, that's one of her maids, would leave the door open for me. When it was locked, I had to knock until she let me in. I'd gone into the kitchen for a glass of milk and was headed to my room when the Baroness went past. 
kitchen in her nightdress. I, I called her name, but she didn't answer. I ran up the stairs and got the Baron. He went down after her and thanked me. He said she was sick and often wasn't in her right mind. Millie told me that not long after, she was in the grain closet with her sweetheart. That's a little room off the back of the kitchen where they store the flour and rice and such. When the Baron did the same thing, at first the two of them hid, and but then they became curious and, and followed her. The Baron took the storage room in the back of the house for his laboratory. He was always mixing up potions for this and that. Millie and her sweetheart saw the Baroness go into the laboratory, pick up a bottle, and drink it. Then she put it back, closed everything up, and went back upstairs. Millie hid again, but said they didn't need to. The Baroness didn't see anything, but to step in front of her. They went into the laboratory to see what she'd taken. Do you remember what it was? Millie wrote it down. He handed me a torn scrap of paper. Vin Ant Port Tart, I read. What? What is that? I took it to a chemist. He says it was a antiminal wine, which is a mixture of sherry and tartar emetic, he said. My nan takes the same for, from her doctor. Millie and I decided to watch the Baroness the next nights and see if she did it again. She didn't have the chance. She died a few days later. A total of 37 vials had been taken from Baron's laboratory and tested. The results, included in my report, were common remedies of the time. Nothing a man would be arrested for having, selling, or administering. This is the part in the story where we pause to give you a chance to catch the killer. You know everything I know. I haven't held anything back. I am due to report back to my employers. What should I advise? There is the last episode of Season 2 and Season 3. We're going to do adaptations of the first in the series. From Sherlock Holmes to Miss Marple to some detectives that will be new to you. Make sure to subscribe to catch Season 3, Enter the Detective. And if you're looking for a new book this summer and love a good mystery, check out De La Cruz Case File Series. Looking for Exacting Justice and Driving Rain by T.G. Wolfe. If Mysteries was a thriller twist, if Mysteries with a thriller twist are more to your liking, try Widow's Run and Suicide Squeeze, where the ex-CIA agent known as Diamond doesn't play by the rules. Okay, let's stop for a second. So this is where we're supposed to figure out who the heck did it, and... Okay, when my mom wrote this, uh, she said she didn't like it, and I see why. Who, raise your hand in the audience if you don't know who it is, because I'd like to talk to you, okay? I feel like they've literally said it. They, they literally said it. They literally said it for the last two hours, or however long we've been doing this, okay? It's very obvious. So, yeah. Who do you think it is? I have no idea. You have no idea? They've been screaming his name! Well, don't give it away. The, it's not giving it away. Okay. I'll laugh when you're wrong. So, okay, you can laugh, but I, I do this every week. I um, I don't read the story before we listen to it or before we record it. I have no idea. This is the first time I've heard this. As you see, I don't prepare at all for these. Anywho, it's obviously the Baron. I'm sorry, but it is. Okay, and if I'm wrong, you know what? And also, um, how did it take that long for the guys to realize Rosaline was the girl who went missing at five? They, it, 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 I'm sorry. Well, we'll see if you're right. I guess we will. Won't we? I need to know. It wasn't Anderson. I'll tell you that much. Chapter 6. The Baron's Final Words. Representatives from the five insurance companies sat one side of the long table, copies of my report in front of them. I sat in the corner with orders to observe. The Baron Ricard sat alone on the other side, unfazed by the odds against him. Gentlemen, I assume you have called me here to pay on my policies, he said. We 
will get to that, Baron, said Winston, the man from the London Sitting Center. There are a few questions that need to be resolved first. Questions? As you like. With a wave of his hand, the Baron granted them the floor. Let us begin with something simple. What is your wife's name? Winston said. The Baron chortled. I wed her as Rosaline Charlotte Brown. She was not born under that name. She was Kath Catherine Bolton. When she was a child, she was given to work in the circus, where she, given the name Charlotte, later she came, she came to work with me and chose the name Rosaline. That's who I fell in love with, and that's who I married. Winston made a show of opening the reports. Catherine Bolton was kidnapped from a park where her family was on an outing. She has been missing for 20 years. The Baron dismissed the account. It is not a new story. Two children, one mouth, too many. The family likely knew the smaller one was too sickly to survive a hard life, so they gave my wife up to it. She worked as a high-wire performer until she fell and severely injured herself. Though she was healed, it was a slow, painful process. You worked in the service, William Atterton, and his wife Gertrude Bolton Anderson. When you went to their service, did you uh, know Mrs. Atterton was Rosaline's sister? No, I was the only. I was only. It was only when Mrs. Atterton told me the tragic story of losing her sister that then I puzzled together. I put it all together. I immediately sent for Rosaline. Was there a resemblance between the pair? Not facially, but they had similar habits, and they were physically connected. It was, it was obvious that Gertrude fell off Rosaline's good health. Our sessions fostered the connection between the point, to the point where Gertrude did not need us. Surely she wanted to keep her sister close? The Baron shrugged, a faint smile on his face. I suppose too much time had passed. Winston frowned. Did Gertrude and know Rosaline was her sister? Or Rosaline know of Gertrude? Why did you bring Rosaline there only to force her to speak only German? That is ridiculous, the Baron's pal. How could I force a grown woman to speak only German? You mesmerized her, Winston said in the same placid voice. You brought Rosaline to Addersons as your assistant. It was only after the story of Gertrude's missing sister that you contrived Rosaline to be that sister. Is that true? No, said the Baron calmly. You undoubtedly heard the unclaimed fortune collecting dust in the office of wills and decided to invest time to see if such a fortune existed for the Boltons. The result was the will of one Reginald Bolton, great-great-great-uncle to Gertrude and Catherine Bolton. That, Baron, is when you concocted your plan, refashioned Rosaline, or Charlotte Brown, into Catherine Bolton marry her and claimed half of the 25,000 pound inheritance. Preposterous. That money is rightfully my wife's for the suffering she endured at the hands of a callous family. Why stop? Winston went on as if the Baron hadn't spoken. Ensuring her life insured years. No carrier would agree to the term of 25,000 pounds, so you would approach each of us for five. I would have preferred a single policy, gentlemen. I did what I had to to comply with your rules. You deny being aware of Mr. Bolton's bequest? Winston asked. I did not. I went to the office of Wills on a personal errand and decided to check my wife's family off the ins unclaimed insurance funds. The investment proved to be worth the effort, as as you said. I, I discovered the will of Mr. Bolton. You were excited by it? Only the king would have been dismissive of such an amount. You realize, of course, that Gertrude and William Adderton stood between you and the other half of the money. That's why he decided to kill them. Mr. Adderton was a dear friend of mine who loved my family. <laughs> it, it, it is he, not me, was accused of having a hand in his wife's death, as ridiculous as it was. Any who know a pair could testify to their mutual, mutual devotion 
and then to have Mr. Adderton take his own life? Such a tragic waste of a good man. Of course, I, I felt responsible in his death. I inadvertently left one of my serums in his room on my last visit. I searched for hours before I realized it had been in his home. But by the time I returned, it was much too late. William had taken the entirety much, much, much more than he should have been used. I regret my inattention, but the mistake was not a criminal by any measure. He took too much of a remedy, an amount more meant for a horse than a man. Throughout the Inquisition, the Baron maintained an air of being above the insanity being hurled at him. For every ball my employers lobbed at the Baron, he effortlessly returned it with a logical explanation. The facts and reasoning I had diligently complied was turning into a routine worthy of a circus that had once employed by Baroness Ricardo. With a mere raising of his brows, he made it seem ridiculous notion that he had memorized William Adderton that he had mesmerized William Adderton into poisoning his wife and that, when successful, he mesmerized him into taking his own life. With a sad shaking of his head, he dismissed the idea that he mesmerized his own wife, the woman he claimed to love, into poisoning herself by stealing into his laboratory. My employers looked at me, their faces grim. Mr. Winston closed his file. Thank you for coming in, Baron. Uh, we are through here. Part 4. Let's talk about this story. Does the logic work? No. Hell no. It doesn't. Writing this adaptation drove me a little crazy because there's a fundamental logic flaw to the original story. The original story is told through a large number of written testimonies and journal excerpts, as the reviews hinted to. We do not see any events happen in real time, and we have to piece it together. A story that tells about the lives of both Gertrude and Adderton and the Baroness Rosaline simultaneously. We don't hear from the Baron directly, and we do not know the final result is. Remember that this story is originally released in eight parts, so the reader had to put the story together. This wasn't so difficult. This wasn't so different from uh, Quentin. Tarantino's Pulp Fiction and other films, but when you put the parts together, it, it still makes no sense. Let's start backwards. Premise number one is the Baron mesmerized. Did the Baron mesmerize his wife into drinking a potion to simulate an elusive illness that would eventually kill her? Why? To claim 25,000 pounds in insurance money. Does it work? Sure, if you're willing to buy. Hypnosis is a murder weapon. It seems weak to me as a hypothesis relied on a willing subject. Rosaline is described as afraid of her husband. It is it's hard to buy that she was not guarded by him. If the story would have stopped there, it would have been a decent mystery. Contrived, but decent. But if there was a premise number two, the Baron mesmerized William Adderson to kill his wife and then himself, meaning that the Baron could alone claim the inheritance. When Mr. Henderson is investigating, Rosaline, Gertrude, and William are all dead, which means they didn't testify. Accepting this motivation requires the belief that the Baron thought he could claim Rosaline was the lost Catherine Bolton after she died. This is another problem for me. The, the structure of the story implies that Rosaline is Catherine, but th there's no proof. Rosaline didn't know. The man who brought her from his parents didn't know who she was, so how did the Baron know? He, he couldn't. Gertrude and Catherine were, were twins, but not described as identical. Still, when the two Gertrude and Rosaline met, there was no funny, you look like me moment. <laughs> they didn't know they were related. There's no testimony of Rosaline using Catherine's name, such as when they were married. You would think, if this were a con, the Baron and his wife would have pressed his case on this inheritance after Gertrude and William died. A living Catherine would have had a better chance to claiming an inheritance where all of his family members are dead. Once she died, his ability to prove her pedigree was reduced to rhetoric. What do you think Rosaline, Gertrude, and William died of? 
my thoughts, Rosaline and Gertrude did died of chronic poisoning of antimony, the ingredient used as a laxative, as both women has pain and stomach issues. I think William overdosed on something else, something that he took out of quietly with one dose, maybe as a narcotic. This story is a good premise. The murder of the Baroness and insurance fraud. In my opinion, it should have stayed there, stretching into this twin kidnapping, murder, suicide, and unclaimed inheritance created a, a lot of holes that the reader either had to ignore, fill in the blanks themselves, or, like me, get really irritated by. The story did not have an actual ending, and the points taken against the Baron were easily refuted. In this adaptation, I gave him the chance to take the stand. If I were to extrapolated this story out. I think the Baron was paid out the 25,000 pounds and was not able to satisfy the case for the inheritance. He was not arrested for any of the deaths because there was only circumstantial evidence. It is up to you to decide if he got away with the murder. That wraps up this episode of Mysteries to Die For. Support our show by subscribing, telling a mystery lover about us, and giving us a five-star review. Becoming a member of our Body Bag Brigade was by financially supporting this season with a one-time donation. Pay what you can. Information is in the show notes and on our website at tgwolf.com podcast. Mysteries to Die For is written by T.G. Wolf with contributions from Jack Wolf. Natural Causes was written by T.G. Wolf, ad- adapted from the Notting Hill Mystery by Charles Felix, otherwise known as Charles Warren Adams. Music and production and by Jack Wolf. Episode Art is by Shannon Leahy. That wraps up Season 2. We're going to take a short break before we launch to Season 3. Enter the detective. Remember to subscribe. And thank you.